0: This is God's word. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you, away from me, you evil doers. The word of the Lord. Thanks.
1: Exciting, exciting. Hmm. I don't know. Let's pray you are good. You alone are good and uh, you, your presence is here with us and in We pray that you speak to us today through your word and by the power of your spirit. Each one of us comes here today from different places. We might be eager, ready to hear what you have for us on a roll. We might feel like we're in several pieces. Desperately needing to be put back together and trying to do it on our own. You know, you know each one, and we ask that you would speak to each one with exactly the love that you want to share. In the name of Jesus, amen. That passage says a lot about fruit, good fruit, bad fruit, bad trees, good trees, Does it remind you of anything else in the Bible? Anything come to mind? Good, trees, Genesis, thank you, I heard that. (laughs) sounds a little bit like creation to me. Um, The good, 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 the Hebrew word is tov, and it's repeated over and over again. God made something, it was good, good, good. And I get to the seventh one, which is the number of perfection, the the culmination, and it's tov tov meot, and I probably said that wrong. Tov me'od. How's that? Uh, it means, we, we say in English, very good, but that's not a really really good um, way to translate it. The me'od, is an adjective meaning vehemently or forcefully. It's forcefully good. And I learned from this book by Lisa Sharon Harper, the very good gospel, that the Hebrew understanding of this word for very good, perfection, it doesn't, it's not contained in the thing itself. It's in, contained in the space between things, in the connection between things. This um, abundant, flourishing, overflowing, never-ending goodness. The seventh tov, the tov mehot in creation. is this perfection. It's, it's in this relationship between all these things, the vehemently, forcefully good, interconnected web of life. Between humans, between men and women, between humans and God, between humans and every other part of creation, between each human being and himself or herself. Wouldn't that be nice to have a good relationship there? Um, We see everywhere, though, the wreckage of relationships. And it's heartbreaking to see the kind of generational poisoning that happens with broken relationships where the worst of it flows to the most vulnerable, children, people on the margins, people who are forgotten and pushed aside. And these toxins get in there and these folks bear the brunt of all that brokenness. At a protest at the federal court building last week on I Street, Speakers uh, talked about the abhorrent conditions at our border in these camps. Families who fled oppression and violence and poverty um, are legally seeking asylum. And at our border, children are separated from their parents once they reach the land of the free and the home of the brave. That's broken. Walter Brueggemann, so we're going we're gonna to talk about the beginning and the end. We're going to talk about this, this perfection of creation, this very good of creation. We're going to talk about the end, shalom, this, this vision that the Bible has uh, at the end of time. And then we're going to talk about everything else in between, 30 minutes. Uh, <laughs> no, we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' shocking way get there. Jesus is always doing something unexpected, and his shocking solution for how to get to this beloved community is the Sermon on the Mount, unbelievably. Walter Brueggemann talks about the end of time. He says, the supreme will of the biblical God is shalom, in which persons are bound not only to God, but to one another, in caring, sharing, rejoicing community, with none to make them afraid. Shalom is what happens in the kingdom of God. And Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of God is here now, but it will be revealed in all its fullness at the end of time. That is what God is up to, and he calls us to be a part of it. And this plan that Jesus has is shocking, and it's found in the Sermon on the Mount. So here's Jesus with his followers and and listeners. And he says things, he starts off with a little hook, a little common sense kind of thing. You have heard it said, don't murder, don't commit adultery, eye for an eye, love your neighbor. You can imagine someone listening or maybe imagine yourself listening and saying, yeah, yeah, I can go with those. The only problem is he he puts a zinger in there and, and then he says, you know, Well, and here's some new crazy stuff from me. You've heard it said, all this, but I say to you, if you hate someone, you're guilty of murder. If you look with lust, you've committed adultery already. If someone smacks you, turn the other cheek. Love your neighbor and, yeah, that makes sense, and ah, throw in all your enemies too. Love them too. I can see the disciples, you know, looking at each other, murmuring. I mean, wait, what? what did he just say? And then he just keeps going. Give generously in secret. Pray daily for God's will to be done, for what he knows you need, not for what you want. Fast secretly. Uh, don't put your trust in wealth. And he kind of throws in, you can't serve God and money. So go ahead and choose one of those. And go ahead, choose. We equivocate. It's like, well, how about God? Money? Uh, No. How about God first, then money? No, can't. Just pick one. And then then just at the end, he just throws in, oh, yeah, and don't worry about anything. (laughs) There's nothing. Don't worry about anything at all. Is that all, Jesus? Are we done? And then he throws in one more. And be perfect, just like God. Okay, okay. It's like, all right, you're piling on. Um, I get it. I get it, Jesus. I get it. You're being sarcastic because <laughs> cause all that stuff you said. But you look serious. Uh, I can't read you right now, Jesus. You're saying some crazy stuff, but you seem like you mean it or something. Part of what happens in the Sermon on the Mount is you, you, you throw up your hands and say, okay, all right, this is impossible. And think of, the, think of it this way. Everyone will reach a point where he or she is overwhelmed. Whatever you're trying to do, whatever plan you have to affect change in your life, to create comfort or meaning, fulfillment, healing, just coping day to day. Sooner or later, your plan will break down and you may be tempted to scramble for a new one. That's what we tend to do. Paul Zoll was this pastor in New York City and his advice to people was, you should have your nervous breakdown early. <laughs> just, just, you're gonna have it, Just have it earlier than you were planning to. The Sermon on the Mount kind of puts the bar way up there. The sooner, the better. Know that you cannot measure up to it. But we tend to be kind of measurer uppers and and uh, judgers, too. Uh, you know, uh, another pastor said, don't judge your you're terrible at it. Just think about how bad you are at reading yourself. I mean, you're wrong about yourself. Can I get an amen on that? You, you know, you're constantly you know, revising your judgment of yourself. You know? If you're wrong about yourself, you're wrong about everybody else, so just don't do it. But here we go into chapter 7. Jesus starts with false prophets. Ferocious wolves dressed like sheep. How does that ever work? Wiley Coyote never pulled it off. I mean, it was not a good look for him with the sheep. You know, he's always got his ears sticking out. There's something off about that. But it's so easy to deceive yourself. There will always be false prophets, and discernment is needed. So don't judge, but Jesus is saying here, be discerning. So I'm only going to say a few things about this first part, but a good, good rule of thumb to kind of be discerning on prophets is to wait, take your time, see what happens over time, see what comes out. Something is going to grow and give it a sniff. You know, uh, Almost any scam tries to get you to do something now. Did you notice that? Uh, act now or you will lose the chance. Wow, it's almost too good to be true. I must act now. Yeah, just wait. You know, pump the brakes. Take your time. Wait a sec. Another giveaway with a prophet is, is the prophet always talking about himself or herself? By definition, a prophet is speaking for God, proclaiming God's will, not the prophet's need for another jet. Just my my opinion on that one. Um, For discerning both false prophets and false disciples, it's vital to do it in groups, to be in community, to help each other discern what's going on in leaders and in ourselves and each other. So the second part of the message I want to spend more time on, and it's a little bit more difficult. How easy is it to see your own stuff? Every, every week in the service, we take a little time of silence during the confession, to confess our own sin and need for grace. And you might find yourself hemming and hawing during that time, or thinking about all kinds of other stuff. I was thinking about preparing my sermon, getting ready to, to preach and uh, not really getting into it in those few seconds. I think might, we might need more time to do that introspective work. Lent is a time of self-examination, and we try to do that a lot around here. How does that feel to you? It's not, it's not my favorite, I'll just say. <laughs> um, if you really do it, it can be sobering. Uh, to say the least. Some of you know I'm in a new role with Rewire. It's part of a missionary organization working with churches. And we are doing a lot of personal, internal work right now, exploring through scripture and prayer and a lot of alone time, some of our own patterns of behavior, how we tend to behave and how that's connected to false narratives from our past. Maybe we've had them since childhood. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that as we, after we get into this passage. Um, Tim Keller is a pastor who points out that these false prophets, uh, the, the false disciples in this passage uh, have some stuff going on that can look like good fruit. They, uh, they have good doctrine. They say, Lord, Lord, that's a, a Greek word, kurios, meaning you know, divine. They kind of Call God by call Jesus by the right name, you know they they're calling him God, they're calling him Lord, the one, the King, basically, and uh, they also have a depth of emotion in in the in this culture when you want to emphasize something and demonstrate emotion, uh, you say it twice, Lord, Lord, and and then they have a whole list of amazing things they're doing. They're they're amazing volunteers they, uh, they're working with the poor they're, uh, they're doing it all they're, you know they, they volunteer they sign up for 2.8 times the number of volunteer hours that the average volunteer spends you know they're, they're doing it and uh, Jesus says, "I never knew you." That was a shocker when he said that. And Jesus is always saying shocking things, but, you know, I I never knew you. Of course, he wasn't saying, oh, I haven't we haven't met. <laughs> he knew about them, you know. He knew them, but not in the sense of how they say new in this culture. He was not intimately connected with them in relationship. They believed the right things. They had emotion, they enjoyed worship music they were moved they volunteered for things they did stuff and they were not bowing to the king and giving up surrendering their will that's really hard for us they're calling jesus king but not bowing if we're honest many of us have asked ourselves this question. How can I have happiness and still retain a little bit of control? How about just, you know, we bargain with God. Just a little bit of control. How about if I just take the final word, the final say, the deciding vote. That's all I want. Um, a false narrative that I've, been focused on, that I've had in my family growing up, I'll just briefly, I'm not going to give you all my stuff, but I'll just briefly, this is um, something that I've recognized, I I guess for years, but really been focusing on it. Uh, It's vital to be right. And it's relatively easy to figure out what's right and wrong. Just look in God's word, it's right there in black and white. Just read it and do it. Uh, That right there is enough to cause some problems, but then there's more. Uh, If you must be right, there's no room for doubt. Guess what? Everyone doubts. So when you doubt, there's nowhere to put it. So you hide it. Going around hiding doubt is not a good way. I can tell you. You're not allowed to doubt, you hide it. Maybe you even hide it from yourself so you don't really examine yourself. It's best just not to look. Don't open that door. That little part of my life, that little part of my past, I don't go there. That's just a taste for me. Each of us has some kind of false narratives that can drive us to create our own program for happiness it's destined to fail because it's based on ourselves and often a warped view of ourselves we tend to take on too much relying on ourselves to make the cut to be the bearers of good fruit to want to be on that side of the divide i want to be the good tree not the bad tree that gets cut down and thrown away i want to be the good tree and so we put that on ourselves And the only two options become deceive ourselves and others into thinking that we're actually doing it. And we can go surprisingly far doing that. Being the one that's getting it all done. Our program is working and and it's going to end in fulfillment. And we can convince ourselves and others of that. Or we blame someone. We either wallow and blame ourselves or we criticize and blame someone else, or we even blame him and we can we can have God as part of our program for happiness and I think that's what these false disciples were doing that religion was all up in their program for making their life work so we You know, we take out our pencil and we say, you will be happy to know, almighty God, that I am including you on the program. I have put you down for 10 to 30 minutes of my time, two to four times a week, some Sundays. I'm going to squeeze you in right after stressing about my kids or parents. Uh... And right between obsessing about what people think about me and worrying about my career, yes, that'll be good, on alternating days, of course, the entire time will be dedicated to criticizing others, self-loathing, and blaming God. No offense. Okay, Lord Yahweh, who spoke the cosmos into existence, uh, shall I pencil you in? And what Jesus says is put down your pencil. Give up your plan and surrender everything. I had a huge turning point in my twenties when I had spent, it's kind of funny, I'm not really a list maker, but and I don't know if I wrote this down necessarily, but I had spent a couple years giving God lists. (laughs) It's hilarious. Uh, lists of all the things that I would be willing to do for him. And my list even grew. It's like, okay, God, I will even do this. You are welcome. I thought, yeah, you know, I was pretty impressed with my list. Um, yeah, God, I'm willing to do that. Uh-huh. I'm so mature. It wasn't until I was broken, and I trashed my list and surrendered, barely whispering, okay, I'll do anything, that God prepared me to be a missionary, and that was not on my list. Ha ha. (laughs) (laughs) But it's the only possible response to a king. you either respond, I'll do anything, or you run for the hills. There was a young man in the deep south during civil rights who observed his father, who was the pastor of a large, white, segregated church, and all the churches in those days had to make the decision. You know, do we stay segregated? Um, You know, they had votes and everything. And... uh, This rabble-rouser, Dr. King, he's a pastor, but he's breaking the law, and, and, you know, we can't do that, you know. So this is the kind of guy that Dr. King wrote a letter from a Birmingham jail to. His most pointed criticism being the white church leaders who were moderate, who were saying, whoa, 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 yeah, we believe in everything you believe, but whoa, slow down. You know, that'll happen in time. And Dr. King's famous letter, if you haven't read it, run home and read it today. But this is the guy that Dr. King was writing about. And this young man, this kid, who was observing his father, and later grew up to write books and stuff, He said that he recognized at some point that his father was saying, Lord, Lord, have I not done all these things in your name? But his father, a prominent preacher at a large church, was was not really surrendering his will. He was not doing the will of the father. And he saw a lot of folks coming down on the Freedom Rides and... Registering voters and doing the will of the Father, doing the work of the kingdom, the shalom, putting back together the very good of creation, work of the kingdom. But many of them were not bowing the knee to the king. And in the immortal words of Forrest Gump, I, th- I think it's both. Both are true. saying, Lord, Lord, having an emotional buy-in, signing up for volunteers. I didn't mean to say don't sign up. We we need a lot of volunteers around here. Um, That's good stuff. But Jesus is saying, I need to know you be intimately connected with you in a love relationship that says everything I am, everything I have is all yours and I will do anything. Not reserving the last word. Not holding back. Not refusing to submit. And that's the way this connected web of relationships can happen. Brene Brown writes a lot about shame and she says this, shame is the fear of disconnection. Shalom means everything is connected and that's what we were created for, that kind of deep connection. Brene Brown says our fear of being disconnected is actually related through studies to our level of shame. It's the fear that our failures make us unworthy of connection. Shame says I am not enough. I must improve or hide it. That sounds familiar to me. She also says, as far as the brain is concerned, physical pain and intense experiences of social rejection hurt in the same way. Another scientist says, distinguishes between healthy shame and toxic shame. Healthy shame, embarrassment, shyness, recognizing our need for community, not to go it alone. Toxic shame is the source of self-isolation and alienation. It's the pervasive sense that I am flawed, I'm defective as a human being. It moves from being an emotion to becoming a core identity. Identity is key. I often ask young people, I help young people understand that they can describe themselves in one word, You know what it is, Noah? Loved. Loved. That's right. I didn't prepare him for that. (laughs) He's been a friend for a long time. You are loved. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is saying. You can't do it You could never do it. Don't say, don't protest. Don't be defensive and say, Lord, Lord, look at all we're doing. Be more like the guy in Luke 18 who couldn't lift his eyes. And he bowed humbly and just said, be gracious to me, a sinner. if God can show us how we're disobedient, we can welcome that word and recognize that it's not our good fruit. It all comes from Jesus and him on the cross. Philippians 1 says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. And you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, good fruit that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Jesus asked us for obedience, not to get that, not to produce that fruit. Not in order to, but because of the fact that you are already completely and fully loved and accepted. In creation, what did God say first? Let there be light. Into the darkness and chaos of the void, God spoke and there was light, chasing the darkness into the corners, separating into night and day. It didn't destroy the darkness. We know that, looking around, looking in. There's darkness. But God can put boundaries on it. God can tell it where to go. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and he calls us salt and light. To be light, you have to be lit. Any light we have doesn't come from ourselves, it's a reflection. And the source of light can reveal himself to us in different ways. He can appear suddenly as a a blinding flash and knock us off our donkeys, like he did to Saul (coughs) or our bikes or he can bring a slow and subtle dawn, opening our eyes to our stubborn pride, our need to control things, brightening to see clearly the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice that we can never deserve, and then we can bask in God's breathtaking forgiveness, the light of that, inspired, animated by God's call to join others, all others, our neighbors, our enemies, even them. You know, in God's work of renewal in every area of creation, in every relationship, in every type of relationship, that shalom, the well-being, wholeness, perfection of God's creation, abundance, peace, lack of fear, restoration of relationships, wholeness, healing, nothing is missing, nothing is broken. Everyone has enough. Shame is renounced and inner freedom takes root and grows and produces that fruit that only God can produce. Shalom is where everyone has dignity, made in the image of God, and it's celebrated everywhere in homes, schools, public discourse, places of work, worship. Every person has a purpose and the capacity for meaningful work and leadership working together as stewards of the earth, taking care of all creation for everyone, every nation, and for future generations. It's where all humanity has the call and capacity to exercise dominion, another word from creation. Even those on the margins of society with no seeming power, even when potential is buried by lack of access, poverty, sickness, violence, when we diminish the capacity of other humans to exercise that God-given dominion, we diminish the image of God on earth. And we have the opportunity to reflect God's kind, God's kingdom, that shalom, that coming together. Scripture is the story of God's work to redeem the very goodness, tov me'ot, of all creation, restoring shalom on earth, all through the power of that radical love shown on the cross. Our actions that break our relationships with ourselves, with others, God, creation, come from shame, that sense of unworthiness, where we hide and hurt others, Jesus shows us that we are loved, we're wanted, and we're part of his call to bring that truth to the rest of creation. Let's pray. God, fill us with understanding so we can see the darkness around and the darkness in ourselves and know that you have already overcome it. And that with gratitude and silent listening, you can move us into a place where we're actually using the gifts that you've given us Together with others, making us salt and light. Again, together, what good is one grain of salt? Uh, show us how to get it together. And to bring help bring the, the joy and the beauty to all those parts of creation that you are about renewing. Thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.